Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, and joining me today, um, I have a local politician um, and a community organizer who is here. Uh, he's got a couple uh, things uh, in the works right now. Um, he, is, he just announced his candidacy uh, earlier this month for uh, the Milwaukee um, School Board of District 5. Um, he's a union officer in the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association. Uh, this past year uh, in the um, primary, he was a candidate for uh, city controller. Um, does a lot of really great work. Uh, he invests in um, the people and in education. So uh, I'm excited to talk to him about uh, everything he does and why he does it. Um, Alex Brower, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben, I really appreciate you having me here. Bet. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Like I said before, we went uh, went on. I'm I'm calling to you from uh, um, a friend of mine's farm up on Washington Island. So I've just taken a few days working from up here, and it's uh, it's a beautiful day on the farm. I'm not sure what the weather is in Milwaukee, but it's probably sunny. And everything down there. So it's uh, so I'm happy about that. Good. Um, that's great. It, it's actually uh, looks like it's about to storm. Um, actually. Uh, there's some rain. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so, but you know, in, in two hours, it might be sunny. Who knows? Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, um, I was out in, uh, Kenosha last night. Uh, have you been following everything that's been going on? Yeah, you bet. You bet. Even though I'm not in Milwaukee currently, you know, I've been closely following everything that's going on. Um, and I, um, the night before last on Sunday night, I was made aware of the situation and of, of the attempted murder um, down in Kenosha, you know, which is just completely abhorrent. Um, if I can comment a little bit on that, um, sure. you know, please. And I appreciate the opportunity. You know, it's, it's just I. Um, you know, I don't want to sound too hyperbolic, but I think that the police are completely out of control. Um, in this state and in this country, um, we need a complete overhaul of the way that we police people. I mean, I think, you know, everybody would agree that we need enforcement of laws, right? Like we, you know, you can't just, you know, your right to swing your fist ends in my face is a saying that's said around and that's, and that's true, right? But, but beyond, but, but starting from that point, um, you know, now where we are is is a is completely alien from from that point of enforcing laws and and maintaining some semblance of order in this society right we're at a point where the police um are are vigilantes you know who who take the law into their own hands and pretend to be judge uh well they don't even pretend i mean they are judge jury and executioner when they're out on, out on the streets and that's completely absolutely unacceptable um, and so to this, you know, what happened on Sunday night, yeah, what happened, or excuse me, what happened Sunday afternoon um, is uh, just another example of, of, what, um, of what the police are, are allowed to be capable of in this society. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. And yeah, like, absolutely. Um, it's, it is important to make the distinction that, you know, it's like a structurally sound society cannot be sustained without laws. And, and as such, like, mm -hmm. you know, the, like I, you know, like I, no one is, no one, no sensible person would be contesting that. Although it's just the way these laws are being enforced in such mm -hmm. a militant and, uh, you know, aggressive and just, you know, 
uncivilized manner is just like you said it's it's absurd um and we got news today that jacob blake uh the the man that was shot seven times in the back uh is paralyzed from the waist down um that came out today oh okay that is really i mean that is i am really glad he's alive First of all, yeah. I'm really glad he's yeah. still alive. Like, let's let's celebrate that, um, because a lot of folks don't make it through a situation like that. Um, but to hear that he's that it's been noted in the news that he is now paralyzed because of that, um, you know, I mean, that man's life has been robbed from him in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like how it, just to imagine what it would be like to be somebody because he was he was you know trying to break up a fight between two women. He, when the police approached, he panicked and fled. He tried to enter a vehicle and he was pulled by his shirt by these, by this officer and then mm-hmm. was shot in such a brutalized manner. And to imagine your life just A, potentially being robbed of you just in that spontaneous moment where you are in a fight or flight response. Um, that's A, like he could have very easily died, but B, just to have your life completely ruined, altered, just never the same, um, like is so horrifying. And I, I stand with all of my black and brown folks that are um, feeling unsafe, feeling threatened, and they have, their emotions are 100% valid. And last night in Kenosha, we saw a massive, um, massive presence of, um, of protesters uh, that were just, you know, rightfully enraged and read and demanding justice. And we had 100 plus cops in riot gear, um, you know, shooting rubber bullets, tear gases, uh, firing out LRADs, um, bringing out armored vehicles. It's just, it's, it a completely like, unnecessary overreaction. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily my friends, um, my friends and I, we are, we made it home safe. Uh, although one of us was shot with a rubber bullet. Um, he's okay. But it's, it, 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 I'd never experienced anything like I had last night. And I'm, I mean, I'm still kind of, you know, processing just what like where we're at with like you said how militarized unnecessarily we're at with the way the this force that's supposed to protect people are engaging in these very in these violent crowd control tactics um it's uh, against unarmed and uh, also unarmored uh just people like regular citizens like it's just it's one of those things where you think about it's like what what have we come to you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's just completely unnecessary and as far as you know what happened what transpired before jacob blake was shot you know i'll just i'll just say this i don't care what he was doing you know the goal of the police um if they were behaving, if they were behaving properly, should be to apprehend and then bring to prosecution the individual for what they're doing. Um, there's no, there's no 
I mean, unless unless there's a, a very very immediate danger to the life of a police officer, there's there's no reason to use any force beyond apprehension, um, and um, you know, bring you know, and and booking, right? There's there's no need. There's absolutely no need. So I, you know, whatever Jacob was doing beforehand is, I mean, I'm I, I honestly, I just want to say it. I don't care. Like apprehend him. Then if he's if he's violating the law, apprehend him. And, yeah. and book him and charge him and then let a judge and a, and a jury or whatever the legal mechanism, you know, uh, be the way that he needs justice if he's doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. People, people have to really, truly evaluate the role of police officers as they, as they are relative to the lives of civilians is that cops should not be killing or brutalizing guilty people either even if he was doing something wrong like you know it it cops shouldn't be like they shouldn't be killing anybody like exactly. it's it's just reprehensible that anyone would be justifying that that like just because you know maybe he was in a state of panic and was resisting arrest like that amount of force like when a when like you said like a the the trained apprehension and subduing should be enough to make somebody to 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 safely you know uh book somebody and uh, mm-hmm. you know apprehend them like i yeah. i mean it's, i personally it's enraging yeah yeah so i solidarity with the folks out in kenosha mm-hmm. once again um i I don't know if I'll be down there again this week, but we'll we'll see what happens. Um, so, Alex, what we talk about on Mr. Nice Guy, we talk love and fear, passion and creativity. And um, so I've been uh, I've followed your work um, you know, in the last year or so um, as I've used this platform to sort of engage with local politicians, community organizers, activists. Um, I've heard some folks that. Um, you know, I've spoken highly of you. Um, my friend Ari Blumenkatz, for example, um, he is, uh, he's a friend of mine and uh, he was enthusiastic about uh, your campaign. Um, and I've talked to other folks in the community that, you know, um, I know that you've been endorsed by Milwaukee's DSA. Um, so I'm a member of PSL. We've done many uh, events and actions with DSA. Good. Um, yeah, I um, I'm excited to kind of hear about your work and you know what uh, what your goals are with your campaign and everything. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own background. Where did you grow up? Where did your um, interest in local politics uh, really sort of take a manifestation? Floor is yours. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, Ben, thank you so much for having me on the program today. I really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, a little bit about me. You know, I, I I don't get too often to talk about this kind of stuff, and I I don't want to you know put too much importance on on the personality of the of the person because I think you know movements are should be should be first in people's minds. But um, if there you know if there's interest from your listeners, I I would love to tell about this. The um, yeah. um, you know, I grew up um in Jefferson, Wisconsin, which is uh, almost exactly between Madison and Milwaukee, small town, uh, population around 7,000. Um, and I, uh, um, you know, yeah, my family, I mean, my family, you know, very, very, um, 
stereotypical, you know, Wisconsin family, right? I, my my great grandfather came from um, from Germany um, and, and came to the Rock River Valley, uh, you know, in the 1860s. So very very much along those lines. And and I grew up in Jefferson. Um, and uh, but there was a number of things that um, you know brought me to where where I am as far as my politics um, at, at a very young age. Um, so when I was in high school and I was in the ninth grade. Uh, several different events occurred. Um, the workers, there's a uh, pepperoni plant. Well, it's actually now closed, unfortunately, but there is a there was a pepperoni plant in Jefferson that had been there almost since settlement, since white settlement in that area um, that was uh, um, owned at that time by Tyson Prepared Foods. It was originally started, um, and this is good, this is going to be a German name for you. It was originally started as Stop and Bach Meats, um, and uh, you know, and then it was bought out by, and it was locally owned for. Uh, several generations bought out eventually by Indiana beef producers um, and then by Tyson Foods. Um, so just as just as regular middle America all across this country has you know suffered from this um, a consolidation of corporate power, same happened in Jefferson. And so what happened, and this is relevant because what happened is when Tyson bought the plant, the workers had what I would say was a a mediocre to good union contract there. They were represented by the uh, union United Food and Commercial Workers, local 538. Um, and so that union, um, Tyson came in and they started their contract negotiations for another multi-year contract. This was, a, I believe, in um, late 2001 or early 2002. Um, and uh, what happened is Tyson came in and said, okay, guys, you know, we're going to, okay, folks, we're going to cut your wages. We're going to reduce your health benefits. And they had, it was a draconian contract proposal to mirror some of their um, contracts or some of their um, uh, wage situations if, there wasn't, if they weren't unionized down at their plants in the South. Um, for the, you know, for your listeners are probably where Tyson Prepared Foods is, is based in Arkansas. Um, so, and it, and it um, you know, the union busting strategies you know, are very alive and well with them. So they came in, proposed a draconian contract and the workers, um, the workers decided to take a stand and they went on strike. They refused to accept the contract. Tyson wouldn't budge. Um, and I believe by February of 2002, they took to the picket line. Um, and every single worker of the, of the over 500 that worked in that plant went on strike except for one. Um, so it was quite a, a show of solidarity um, for a small you know, right of center town um, to display. And those workers, I mean, it, um, it was quite a fight. And at first, you know, I, mean, I didn't have any family or anything like that that was involved in the strike, although I had friends whose both of their parents were on strike. And, and it was, and, and now when I reflect on it, I, you know, I'm ashamed that I was even, you know, uh, that I, I didn't even become aware of their struggle until the strike got even bigger. Um, but, you know, Midwestern modesty, sometimes a lot of people don't want to talk about their struggles, um, right? So the, um, but the strike got bigger and bigger and, um, and, and more notoriety and it continued to go. It actually, the strike went for an entire year. Um, and during that year, you know, I got involved in going to the picket line. You know, there was food drives at my high school to, to raise, to get food for the strikers. Um, Tyson didn't back down. The union didn't back down. And it was just extraordinarily eye-opening for me as a young man to see that show of solidarity in my, in my hometown. Um, so I had never ever witnessed something like that. And my, my folks, you know, my parents are, are progressive people, um, you know, but they're not, um, they're not especially active, at least at that time, they are more so now, but they, they weren't at that time. And, um, 
And so I just, I just was like, okay, this is something wrong that's happening and I want to be a part of help make, helping to make it right. So we, you know, I, so I got involved in that. Um, and those same workers were actually also the backbone of an effort to prevent the construction of a Walmart super center in Jefferson as well. So it was kind of the, you know, two large Southern corporations, uh, you know, bent on, on destroying the American worker were, um, were converging on Jefferson. And, um, and I found myself in the middle of those fights, um, you know, so being on the picket line with those workers and then, you know, being invited by a lot of those workers to aid in their fight to stop this super center um, from being, uh, uh, from being constructed. Um, so in February of 03, the workers, um, there's a weird, well, it's not weird, it's a draconian, there's a draconian federal law that says if you're on strike for more than a year, the company can actually um, legally kick the union out of the plant. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's why we need to repeal Taft-Hartley, you know, and that's why we need, you know, that's why we need a complete overhaul of federal labor legislation, Jesus, you know, yeah. more than anything, any, unfortunately, any, any mainstream Democrats are discussing right now. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was that was a legal maneuver that Tyson pulled. So the workers had to ex unfortunately accept the contract, and eventually most of them received their jobs back. They, uh, as part of the reentry agreement, I believe they did have to wait until the scabs until some of the scabs left their positions. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, you know, it just it just it was a as far as for me, it was a huge eye opening experience. Um, and those workers continued to fight. Um, you know, against Walmart, even after the strike was lost, they continued to be the backbone of the effort against Walmart. And so we had a multi-year campaign um, throughout my, the entire time I was in high school against Walmart. And um, it did culminate in the spring of 2006 when I was a senior in um, a, an election in the city of Jefferson where you had a slate of anti-Walmart candidates and a slate of pro-Walmart candidates. And the, unfortunately, the pro-Walmart candidates won every single seat that we were running in um in that year so that was that was unfortunate but it really um helped me to understand the dynamics of how this stuff works and the and the interplay between um you know the corporations and elected officials and and community leaders and how they're all you know working to, to strengthen each other and, and honestly to repress working people in this country um and so i um you know, that's what got me started. There was other things that I was doing too. I mean, I got involved in an environmental cause too against a high tension power line. That was a partially successful effort out in, in Jefferson. Um, and so it was just a, you know, it was just an awakening. You know, that, those two events though, the Walmart Supercenter th uh, issue and then the, um, the strike at the Tyson plant were both um, really influential in me and I, I ended up uh, you know I attended Beloit College so the fall of 06 I was down there um, we had a group on campus that was working to fight you probably remember um, in the fall of 06 the Republicans put the um, uh, marriage inequality amendment to the voters that fall yeah. for yeah, November yeah. you know and so there was I was part of a, a group of campus on uh, a campus effort to fight that um, now unfortunately that did pass and unfortunately that discrimination is still etched into our state's constitution. Um, but, you know, but the good thing is, is we, you know, a lot of progressives, um, you know, did get elected that fall as part of a backlash against that and also a backlash against the Iraq war um, too. And that was, you know, actually that were, well, I mentioned while I bring that up, you know, that, uh, that invasion, you know, that occurred, I believe it was March of 03 that that invasion yeah. occurred. And, um, you know, that was really formative for me too, because what I saw, you know, at least on a national, although I was, was way more involved locally, but on a national level, I saw, you know, these people um, just get hoodwinked into the lies 
yeah. the compl and it was it was very eye-opening to see you know just politicians who you would on the surface think have a lot of common sense and be yeah. able to see through garbage like that just yeah. just eat it up you know yeah. eat up the lies about the iraq war so that we could send you know what ended up being over five thousand people of five thousand americans to their death as well as yeah. hundreds of thousands of innocent iraqis um who uh, perished as casualties civilian casualties of that war um and not to mention the creation of isis and all that stuff but um that it right. precipitated right um so it's uh, you know all those things kind of came together um you know and then we were but you know so anyway going back to beloit you know we were we were we fought that um I, at that point, I was very involved in college Dems and we were fighting on a lot of issues. Um, and, you know, um, let's see, where, where do I go from there? The, uh, the election of Barack Obama, um, I thought, although I, you know, honestly, I kind of laugh at myself at this, but, you know, I, I really did think the world was going to change when that happened. And I think many a lot of, of us did. Many yeah. of us did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, literally, like, you know, that I remember that I was helping out some, some, some of the assembly Democrats. Um, at that time, and that day I was at the UW, I was a student at Beloit, but I was at UW-Whitewater's campus trying to get Whitewater students out to vote um, for some Democratic candidates, um, including obviously Barack Obama. And, you know, and, and that day, I mean, I, as soon as it was announced on the radio, when I was driving back to Beloit, um, you know, I, th I thought that the world was going to change, you know, and so it, um, I guess another, you know, another formative for my thinking, you know, process was, you know, seeing that administration that was supposed to be the answer to the failures to the utter failure that the George Bush administration was um, just, you know, fail to, to deliver on what they yeah. had originally intended on delivering. Um, so that was really, really disappointing to see that. And, and so I guess like, you know, so now here I am, um, you know, as a, uh, a democratic socialist candidate to, for city comptroller earlier this year and now for school board. And that's all those things have informed, you know, my, um, you know, my worldview yeah. um, to, to believe that, you know, at this point that, that, that we cannot, if we want to have the world that we want, we cannot have that world with capitalism in place. Um, and that's just, you know, I, I am not going to back down on that. And I'm not going to apologize for saying that. You know, it's, uh, you know, that is, capitalism is incompatible with democracy, right. uh, period. You know, it's, uh, it's just, it just doesn't work. And now I'm not under any uh, presumptions that, you know, being on the school board, I'm going to be able to, you know, overthrow capitalism, but um, we can all do our part as far as that's concerned. Um, but just to get back to a little bit more background about me, you know, we, um, I, I graduated from Beloit College. Um, I uh, was involved in union organizing, um, you know, almost immediately after I graduated, or about a year after I graduated, a year and a half was when the uprising at the state capitol happened. I got into union organizing then. I was working for, I ended up working for Local 538, the local that had been on strike. Um, and then I ended up working for um, UFCW Local 1473 here in Milwaukee. Um, and uh, so I did union organizing. I, um, you know, in the process of, in the process of looking for work that was a little bit more flexible and, a, and maybe a little bit more stable, uh, I did end up becoming a substitute teacher. Um, and so, and I was involved in a number of different projects. Um, the part of my work with local 538 was actually to help out at, um, and in conjunction with my work at local 538, I ended up working and helping out at a, um, at the small credit union for the plant too. So I got into, 
Um, and that was in this in the spring of 11. I was started working at, at Stoppenbach Credit Union and that helped to open my eyes as well to the to the finance system and how it um, just eviscerates working people and, and, and squeezes every penny it can from them. Um, and not, not our credit union. I mean, we were, we were of by and for working people, but, um, but just the financial system as a whole, um, you know, and, and from Wall Street all the way down. Um, and it even, you know, it forces even local credit unions that are member owned and even, and even community banks that are trying to do a good job, it forces them to be bad actors as well. Yeah. The system does, you know, and even, I mean, you know, there are, there are some good community banks out there. Um, there's a lot of great credit unions and they're trying to do good and the system won't let them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Essentially. yeah it, it won't let them. And so, so I, I worked at Sapphima Credit and we actually, I was a part of an effort for a while. Um, that's actually ending right now ending recently that I can go into if you're, if you're interested about that yeah, we were, we were, we were start, working to start a credit union here in River West as well um, in the River West neighborhood in Milwaukee in the five through two and two zip code. So I, I was at Stoppenbach and when I moved to Milwaukee uh, to work for local 1473 and I moved to River West, you know, I just, I thought, you know, this is a neighborhood and a community that is very similar to what I witnessed or, as a community around the plant in Jefferson. And so we can have our own financial institution. And so I was a part of that effort and it all kind of, you know, came together in such a weird way, you know, so I was working on the credit union, I was doing some union organizing and I just thought like, man, I really need a job that's going to be a little more flexible than yeah. being an organizer. And so that's how I ended up in substitute teaching. And that precipitated a whole bunch of events, which I'll get into in a second. But, you know, as far as the credit union is concerned, you know, we were looking to start a credit union that was of by and for the 99%. Um, you know, for a number of different reasons, um, we uh, actually, within the last few months, we have decided to end that effort. And I'll chalk that up to say this, that, um, you know, the, the state of Wisconsin is not terribly interested in new credit unions starting. Um, even though they may say they are, they're not. And also, you know, it's, it's really difficult to start something like that in capitalism, That's you know, right. and have it be the kind of, they have it be the kind of actor that you want it to be. So yeah. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll chalk it up to that, but we, um, you know, for about five years, I worked on that project. Um, and, uh, but I did, I did learn a lot. I mean, that was, you know, writing that business plan. And if your listeners are interested in, in, in learning more about that, you know, they can go to neweconomycu.org um, and see the, the business plan and financials and all that stuff that I, we've got out there. And, and if, you know, um, anyway, if they want to check that out, but the, uh, uh, so I was working on that and um, I became a sub and as part of my work as a sub, you know, I got involved and in, I became a member of the MTEA. I actually, I joined the day that I, started working as soon as I got hired by MPS I signed the forms walked right across the street you know I went across Valite Street and uh, signed up for the MTEA and um yeah and so I started you know and, and so it was just really honestly very serendipitous you know I, I got into substitute teaching I had a substitute teacher in high school who was really influential to me and and um, who I really appreciated and who exposed me to a lot of left-wing ideas and had a lot of conversations to help contextualize what was happening as far as the strike and as far as the Walmart fight, when yeah. I was a high schooler, um, so that was cool. He was a, a philosophy PhD who just happened to be substitute teaching, and you know we had a lot of great conversations. Dr. Steinbach was his name, and so um, so anyway, so I thought, well, hey, I can I can do that on the side and do all these other projects I'm working on, and and um, and then you know, one thing leads to another, you know, and, I, and pretty soon I found myself 
having a beer with Kim Schrader, the former vice president of the MTA. And he says to me, he's like, Alex, you know, you should think about becoming the president of the subs. Um, Cause there was going to be an opening for that position. And then um, he's like, you know, listen, we don't really have any other active, a lot of act, other active subs um, that are willing to make this commitment. You should consider doing this. And, and, um, and so I did. And, and that precipitated a whole bunch of, of fights and campaigns related to that. Um, even though, you know, it's just weird how this stuff happens. It's weird how life takes you right Ben, because, you know, I never intended to, to be the president of any sort of union or anything, but I, um, you know, just kind of fell into it. And then um, what happened though, is when I became the president, um, the day that I was inaugurated as president, actually, I was informed um, that about 20%, that was my, my estimation, was about 20% of our workforce was outsourced to a temp agency, Goodwill Talent Bridge. Um, that the district, so the, you know, the, the district, like a lot of employers has uh, in recent years, the school district, I mean, when I say the district, I mean the school district of Milwaukee, you know, like a lot of employers has turned to temp agencies to fill need. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's terribly misguided. I couldn't be more opposed to that, to temp agencies. I think they're exploitative. Mm. Um, Goodwill Talent Bridge specifically is the for-profit wing of Goodwill Industries of Southeastern Wisconsin. Mm. And, um, and so, you, you know, what I've found is that a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of these nonprofits behind their uh, carefully crafted facade is, is exploitation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's unfortunate because that shouldn't be that way. Um, but uh, so we, we fought a campaign to bring all of those to end the privatization of our jobs mm. in coupled with a call for um, healthcare for every full-time sub. The district was on the one hand, the district was saying, we can't get anybody to substitute teach, so we need a temp agency. And our response in the union um, was, was this, was, well, you know, you should be offering people benefits and a steady job, and that will attract and retain more folks into substitute teaching. Um, and that's, that's your answer right there. Yeah. Um, now, you know, of course that stuff costs money. It's cheaper to, to outsource in that respect. It was cheaper to outsource than it was to, to give folks benefits. Although, you know, generally it is more true that keeping things in house is cheaper in the long run. Um, so we, you know, we fought that um, and we, we did petitioning, we did media events, um, we did some demonstrations and protesting. And, and in September of 2017, the school board voted to um, end the substitute teacher portion of the contract with Goodwill Talent Bridge. And every single sub that was a temp was then subsequently offered a position with Milwaukee Public Schools. Oh, wow. Awesome. So, yeah, so that was great. I mean, there, you know, I was, I was very proud of that achievement. Um, and uh, um, we then moved on to calling for healthcare for every single substitute teacher that worked full time. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people in the political establishment, Ben, I mean, this might sound weird to you, you know, but a lot of people in the political establishment here in Milwaukee thought that subs getting healthcare was absolutely insane. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I still don't understand that. And that's why there's a, a world of difference between people like myself and mainstream democratic politicians. Um, it's, it's a human <laughs> right. It's, it's a human yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, but their answer, you know, their answer was, oh, well, you could get a plan over the ACA. And, you know, for your listeners um, and your viewers, you know, the uh, those of those of you all listening and doing this who, who have had plans through the ACA, um, those are not quality health insurance plans. 
period. Right, yeah. You get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those, you know, and so, and, um, and that's, you know, I mean, that's why we need Medicare for all. First of all, if, we, if, if Obama had pushed more for Medicare for all, maybe subs wouldn't have been in that position in the first place, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. But, but um, you know, what a shoulda, coulda. But um, what I will say is that we fought a campaign. So starting in September of 2017, we fought a campaign calling for health insurance for every single substitute teacher. Um, we did get a lot of traction, though. I will say for every, for every you know, um, mainstream Democratic politician who, who laughed at the idea here in Milwaukee, and who a lot of them are still in office, who laughed at the idea of having health care for every sub, there was just as many who said, thank you for bringing this issue up. And this is, I'm really glad you're doing this. Um, and a lot of the ones who, who stood with me, I mean, you're here and I, you know, and I, I applaud those folks, you know, and it was, it was, a, it was, it was interesting. I mean, you know, some, some of them were surprises and some of them were, were, um, you know, and it was also surprising some of the people that wouldn't, that wouldn't stand for it, that wouldn't stand up with us. Um, so, and, but without getting into all that personality stuff, um, I'll say that, uh, you know, we fought for this and the fight culminated in May of 2018 when um, I uh, went on a hunger strike to demand these healthcare benefits. Um, And so, yeah, the, um, I mean, you know, folks can, you know, Google substitute teacher hunger strike and and this will, this will, this will pop up. We, uh, I started on May 4th of 2018. Um, I went for 21 days um, on hunger strike. And at the end of those 21 days on May 24th, the school board voted in a plan um, to give um, health care benefits to up to two-thirds of substitute teachers. Oh, wow. So, That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, and so there's, um, yeah, so there's, uh, uh, you know, there are substitute teachers right now. Um, I'm not included. They, they, uh, they drafted the proposal in a way that would exclude me, um, and that's, you know, that's how petty some of these people are out there. But, you know, I don't, I'm not going to get into that because it was never about me, and it was never about me getting health insurance. It was about our, my coworkers and my, my comrades in the struggle getting the, what they deserve and what they're entitled to. Um, you know, so the, uh, you know, so, yeah, so this proposal passed, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, I wanted every single full-time sub. Um, and hence, uh, you know, their administration has eroded it a little bit, but I will say this, that a substitute teacher in Milwaukee public schools that wants and needs healthcare can get it now. Mm-hmm. Good. That's... They have to unfortunately jump through, they have to jump through a few more hoops than other employees, unfortunately, which is still a wrong in my opinion, but yeah. they can get healthcare. And sounds so like, and that is, um, it sounds like incremental success, you know, like, yeah. A step in the right direction, yeah. obviously, like not getting mm-hmm. everything you asked for, but still a massive victory. And, well, and, and this is this is what I would say to your listeners and your viewers as far as the recipe. Here's the recipe for that is that, you know, you demand exactly what you want. And in the end, sometimes you have to accept a compromise. Um, but I'll take the compromise as a victory as yeah. long as we started off by fighting for exactly what we wanted. You know, so the so the Democrats out there who say that we shouldn't fight for things like the Green New Deal, or we shouldn't fight for Medicare for all, or we shouldn't fight for world peace, or nuclear disarmament, and, and that sort of stuff, you know, that that's just complete folly, um, because we start by advocating for those things, and even if we don't win it, we make gains towards those fronts, but you don't make a gain by just you know calling for demanding right off the gate moderate or modest reforms. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you demand for the reform, then that becomes the end goal. When you're looking for, like, 
we're looking for such you know higher we're, we're actually like we're standardizing you know complete revolution of these things but if your end goal is to reform you're not asking for enough and you're not you're, you're certainly not going to win enough either and i remember someone mm -hmm. said that to me like someone said that to me um uh like a river west anarchist like i was struck up a conversation with last summer mm -hmm. and they said that they're like the more you ask for like you know the you're never going to get everything you ask for but the compromise will be bigger um like you'll have you'll get more um you'll get more from the compromise if the more you ask for which is a very key thing about how you know like the gradual societal change happens for sure too Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, and so and to the and that's and that's precisely the case, you know, with the with the police, right? The you know, for those of us who are demanding a complete reform of how policing is done, I believe that that demand will result in um, a greater reform of how we enforce laws in this country um, than a demand to just reform policing. You know, or to or to say that to say that the problem the problem is just a single policy or standard operating procedure. Right. No, you know the we we demand a complete look a complete new look about how we do policing in this country. You know, I guess you can call that whatever you want. You can call it abolishing the police. You can call it you know whatever defunding. I mean, you can call it all kinds of different things. But if we demand a complete radical reshaping of law enforcement, you know, we will we will come out on the other end with a better product than we will if we just demand reform. That's right. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what I think. And so, uh, you know, for your, for your listeners out there and, and your viewers who are, you know, who are activists and who are considering these kinds of things and considering strategy, you know, my, my big recommendation um, for my years of involvement in, in movements would be to, to shoot for the moon, yeah. you know, on these things, but, but to take compromises and claim a compromise as a victory where you can, I will, I will claim, that substitute teacher um, uh, victory, or excuse me, the substitute teacher compromise, I'll claim it as a victory. Mm, you know, I'll, yeah. I won't claim it any other way. Um, you know, as far as the hunger strike, you know, a lot of people are interested in how I, I manage something like that. So if you don't mind, I can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, yeah. That was a, a huge direct action. I'd never done something like that before in my life. Um, and I would, you know, caution anybody to very seriously consider, you know, every option and, and something like that before they engage in something like that although i'll say this though that when all options fail you've got to do something radical um and you have no other choice you know i had we were dealing with this in the spring of 2018 we were dealing our union our subunion was dealing with a school board that you know frankly was mediocre at best you had a lot of well-wishers who called themselves democrats um, who weren't willing to stand up for what's right or to be out, to stand out of the crowd. Um, and you know, a lot of that thinking is still very pervasive on the school board, and it's very pervasive in every single elected body that I am familiar with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that mentality, you know, so that mentality is still there, but it's less because we had some really good people get elected to the school board last year, so that was good. Um, but so you had this mentality, you know, like, you know, okay, well, maybe if we ignore this crazy man, he'll just go away. And, um, and I didn't, and, and we didn't. And so, and, you know, and I realized in April of 2018 that um, we were going to need to take extraordinary drastic action um, in order to win something. Now, I was a fan of us engaging in a strike. 
Um, and I do still advocate that for every, you know, especially education's not getting any better, right? Like I would advocate for every single education worker and your listeners who work in education to start mobilizing for mass direct action, including walkouts and sick outs. You know, I, I advocate for that right now. Um, and in, in response to everything that's happening too. Um, but we, you know, so we, we, but what we weren't able to do, we weren't able to muster, um, we weren't able to muster a strike of substitute teachers. I mean, I, I knew that right off the bat, that our, our union was unfortunately just a little too weak to be able to muster our substitute teacher union. Um, it was a little too weak to be able to muster something like that. And uh, so I, okay, okay, it's gonna have to be some sort of individual action. And the hunger strike has been used by labor in the past um, in the United States. And obviously, you know, the, um, the, the, for the freedom fighters in Northern Ireland um, utilized it very well to make significant gains. Um, although there's, you know, sometimes those ended, a lot of times those ended in tragedy, unfortunately, but um, it's, it's a tactic that's been used by the left, the global left, and um, also in India and every other place too, that's been used. So we decided to, you know, I decided to engage in it. And, um, you know, I was trying to recruit others to join me, but I, in the end, I was the only one who was, who was able to do it. And, um, but I'll, I'll credit it as the way that we were able to win that game. Um, and it was a very difficult thing. I mean, throughout the entire hunger strike, I did have, um, I did have one glass of juice fresh squeezed from Outpost. Um, good choice. That I, good, good, good choice. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm trying not to put bad stuff in my body. Even right. it's just like well, a, just also but, outpost. Outpost has good stuff. So. Oh yeah, I, yeah. No, the, the food is the food is good. The um. So yeah. So it's uh, um. It was a very difficult operation, and um. You know, I didn't know if we were gonna win. Um. You know, it, it affected me considerably physically. Um. I don't want to say that I would never rule something like that out again, but I will say that. You know, um. It was extraordinarily difficult to engage in that um, emotionally. I mean, it, and it does mess you up physically too. You know, after maybe about the 15th or 16th day is when a lot of the physical side effects really, really start to hit like the um, chronic dehydration and stuff. Now I was drinking water, just so your listeners were aware, I was drinking water, but what happens is your body um, doesn't even, after a certain time, your body stops retaining the water that you're even drinking. So I, my mouth was uh, constantly dry. It's like I had cotton mouth for days. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, but anyway, you know, I, uh, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about, you know, how that went. Um, Cause a lot of people are always really curious about that. Um, but so, you know, so on May 24th of 2018, I did end the hunger strike after we came to a compromise. And I'm, you know, my school board director, Larry Miller, was the one who negotiated and helped negotiate that compromise. And I really am glad that he did that. Um, so that was, that was good. And uh, um, yeah, so we made that victory. And, um, you know, just this year, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, I was termed out. So I am no longer the president of the substitute teachers. I serve as a union officer being the past president of the subs now. And my successor, Ron Heilman, um, I've really got a lot of faith in him. So I think he'll do some good stuff. But it, uh, um, yeah, so that was, you know, that was that fight. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a bunch of others, you know, after the hunger strike actually is when some people started approaching me, especially in DSA and saying, um, you should consider running for office, Alex. And so that, um, you know, I'd considered it before. I mean, I, you know, I've done politics and elections. It's not like I never considered it, but it, um, um, but what I had uh, never considered was, you know, what specific offices. And so we, in DSA, we took a look at some different offices and, um, you know, we wanted to be strategic. We're not interested in, you know, 
you know, I, I uh, although I am, I am a socialist, I also consider myself rather pragmatic in the sense that, like, I don't want to engage on something that's that's completely destined to lose electorally. So we just, you know, the comptroller seat was going to be open. And so we decided to mount a campaign for that. And plus, I have a you know background with working with credit unions and and finance. I'm very interested in those those topics. So I have a lot of knowledge as far as as far as those things. So we launched the campaign for comptroller um, in the spring of 2019. And uh, yeah, you know, we um, for being a substitute teacher that a lot of the political establishment laughed at when I decided to run for office. I will say that uh, you know we did very well. You know, I in the primary on February 18th, I received uh, 26% of the vote. Um, the next highest person received 30%, and the um, uh, the top person of the three-way primary um, uh, received the rest. And what I'll say is that um, you know those those two folks, um, I just saw them and Jason Fields went on to face off against each other on the April election, and I just saw um, ended up winning the comptroller's election. Um, but I'll say this, that, you know, for being a substitute teacher uh, with not as much name recognition as those other as City Hall's candidate or as Jason Fields, um, you know, we did very well and we called for a lot of radical things. And I, um, you know, I would say I would say that my defeat or, or you know, inability to, to make it past the primary was not due to any of the radical things we were talking about. It was due to the fact that, you know, we just, you know, it was the first campaign I ran and, um you know, I think there were some a few things we could have done better, like, you know, raise more money and maybe knock more doors and get more mailers out there. But, uh, you know, for being at the we were at capacity. And so it just, you know, I'll just chalk it up to a lesson learned. And, um, we, you know, we're, we're definitely learning all the lessons and uh, going to move on to the next race. But, um, gosh, you asked me almost an hour ago about my background, <laughs> Ben, and, <laughs> and, now, and now here I am. <laughs> it, it makes my job easier. Um, but, uh, no, I, I appreciate you sharing all this with me, Alex. I, I, it's really remarkable and just fantastic, you know, how you've proved to be just a, a, uh, protector and an agent for the working class, um, in order to like, you know, bring them remedies and resources and just, um, and conditions that, you know, make being um a lower mid-wage worker um to just make it easier a lot of these things are things we advocate for in the psl as well and you know mm -hmm. i i really admire just how i i've recently actually learned a lot about labor unions uh, as part of my candidacy for the psl and uh, like mm -hmm. just learning about how much some of these corporate these corporatized businesses are just trying to you know are engaging in a lot of just you know uh anti-union propaganda and rhetoric they're manipulating their workers into believing that like um a union is is problematic or it's unproductive but really what it is is just these businesses just don't want to spend money on their workers and if you don't and workers that don't in, and businesses that don't invest in their workers are i mean i'm just going to say it are just trash and i won't patronize them <laughs> <Yeah>. so i <laughs> so you know i yeah. um, i wanted to hear a little bit about so you said so you did a lot of um 
uh, union work, obviously, for, for so mm -hmm. long. I'm, I'm interested because, so I'm actually, um, I didn't mention before, I'm actually from Illinois. Um, grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. I came to Milwaukee for UWM in 2014. Um, and right when okay. I came, yeah, right when I came to Milwaukee was sort of when right to work was such a big deal. And mm -hmm. I want to hear sort of how you as, as um, a champion of unions, I guess just how you and your organizations coped with like the conditions that Scott Walker tried to basically just demolish unions with. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because that's something that every, I believe every labor leader should be should be uh, regarding and pondering on that, that particular question like every day. Um, and, and when I see that not happening, it, it disappoints me in the labor movement. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, um, it's interesting. I mean, I am, I am a labor leader. I don't really come from a labor background though. I mean, my, my dad was in the carpenters union and my mom is a retired member of the uh, teachers union, but they, um, you know, when I was, when I was coming up in, in my, in my thinking and, and becoming my activism, you know, my, my, neither of my folks were, were terribly involved in that, but, but, you know, Scott Walker dropping the bomb um, and, and the Tyson strike when I was in high school completely, you know, informed my thinking on the importance of unions. The, um, and they're, they're absolutely crucial to the working class. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of room for improvement in existing unions. Um, I'll just, I'll just say that, you know, and, and I mean, I could, I could talk about that if you're interested too, if, if you ask me about that later, but as far as that particular question of how we're dealing with Scott Walker's environment, I think unions, um, what I want, what I aim to do in my labor activism and what I aim to do as the president of subs was take advantage of that situation and what I'm, um, the, the situation that Walker presented. And what, what I mean by that is this, that, so, so Scott Walker, you know, there's this, um, and this is glossing over a lot of history, but I'll just say in general, there was a post-war consensus in labor, right? The post-World War II, right? The post-war consensus between labor and capital was this. Okay, you know, we'll give you a lot of stuff you want. You know, we'll give you, we'll give you generous pensions. We'll give you sick days. We'll give you all this, but, but stop striking, <laughs> you know, right? And, and stop causing all this ruckus, you know, and we'll, and we'll give you a lot, of, a lot of goodies in exchange for that, as long as the free flow of capital continues. And then what happened, and so that was the post-war consensus, right? And then what happened is the corporations, they got a little too greedy, you know, and they, um, and, I, and I think in some ways too, you know, some of the labor leadership got a little too complacent. Um, and so you had this perfect storm of then what happened is then the corporations, um, you know, I, th I think a turning point was the PATCO um, or the, um, the air traffic controller strike. Um, I'm, I don't totally remember the year. I think it was either 80 or 81 that that happened. Um, but, to, you know, I don't totally remember it. But uh, for your listeners, if your listeners are going to cite sources and stuff, but I, uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, you know, that PATCO strike was a turning point in, in the sense that the corporations then, then knew that they could, they could walk away from the post-war um, deal. That was made with labor and so that was the start of the erosion of all this stuff and and so what they've done is that that post-war deal also came with a whole bunch of legal protections you know it came with this whole legal apparatus of like okay instead of striking how about we say that you can file grievances and you can file labor charges and before the fed you can appear before federal um, administrative law judges and plead your case rather than taking to the streets and you know labor took that deal uh, labor, for the most part, labor leadership took that deal, you know, of, of um, you know, having these, you know, I guess, 
you know, relying more on lawyers than maybe they should have. Um, and, and the corporations pushed it too. And I mean, everybody just went along with it, you know, and so not, I'm not blaming any specific person, or any specific union for that, for that, but, um, so it created this whole legal apparatus and then, you know, starting with the Patco strike and, and continuing to, to, to Scott Walker, you know, that was the, Scott Walker said, okay, well now we've weakened the union so much. Let's take away all that legal apparatus. Let's just throw it in the trash, you know, right. Let's, let's, and he obviously wasn't able to repeal every labor law. And I mean, he's, I mean, I know that I, I suspect he has presidential aspirations. And so maybe he'll do that if he ever gets elected president. And so we should watch out for that. But what he did though, I'm going to argue that he actually created somewhat of an opportunity for labor with this. Um, although I would say that, you know, he never should have done what he did. Act 10 should be repealed and right to work should be repealed, obviously. Like, and the Democrats better have that as one of their first bills that they introduce when they gain a majority again in Wisconsin, period. Right. But, um, but, you know, trying to look into the glass half full kind of attitude, um, the, it did create an opportunity because we in labor can go back to our roots and go closer to direct action tactics that were used. Because if we don't have a legal remedy, well, we always have the streets that we can turn to and direct action tactics. Um, and so like, I wouldn't have been able to engage in the direct action tactics I did to stop the temp agency and win healthcare if, if all that legal apparatus had been in place, um, if Scott Walker hadn't gutted all of that. Right. Like it would have just been, oh, well, Alex, just be quiet because wait for the contract negotiations to start up again. And, you know, we can we can win it. Now, I will say this about the substitute teacher contract, the contract that subs had before Act 10 did have health insurance and did have sick days and had great pay and, and it made it a career. Right. So it, it did actually solve that problem. So, the, the, you know, when we lost all that in the district, the school board voted to take all of that away from us. Um, you know, then we, we you know, and then we after Act 10. Um, then we had to, you know, use direct action tactics. So I think there's, I think, and, and labor leaders are not taking the opportunities that they can take in this environment. Um, because if you can't, if you can't rely on the lawyers for everything, um, and I, so I might sound like I'm being anti-lawyer. I actually have a lot of friends that are lawyers. And I think, I think sure. lawyers are great. I'm not trying to be anti-lawyer here, but, um, but if you can't rely on the lawyers for everything, then um, you need to use direct action tactics. And so that's the missing component, I think, and a lot of that's missing from a lot of labor leaders, a lot of labor strategy right now is direct action. With a very few exceptions, I will put MTEA as a huge exception to that. And our executive director, Ben Ward and Amy Mizialko, our president, are leading the way as far as direct actions to win tangible gains for working people. Um, so, so that's good. But um, other unions, I'm not seeing as much of it as them doing that. So I think, um, you know, that's been my, my conclusion, my concluding thoughts as far as when I ponder Act 10 and right to work and the other gutting of the legal mechanisms that they're, that they're trying. Um, you know, that's my, my first reaction is we've got to turn then to direct action tactics to what was used, you know, before the legal mechanisms existed. Um, and in some ways, in some ways, I think that that can make organized labor stronger. You know, I mean, there's there's a book um, by uh, um, there's a book called I forget the, forgetting the author's name now, but there's a book called Reviving the Strike. Um, and if for those of you, for those listeners and viewers that are interested in labor and an analysis of labor history, as far as from a labor power perspective, I would highly recommend reading that book. I read that book that changed my views on unions. Um, but the premise of that book is that um, you know labor became weak when it stopped striking. 
Um, and that's the central theme of that book. And so, and I, I would agree with a lot of that, what that book said and a lot of that premise that like, you know, when we stop using direct action tactics, we don't have as much power. So Scott Walker, um, he has created an opportunity um, for labor to advantage itself by turning back to the um, old tactics of direct action. So that's where I think, um, does, does that answer your question, Ben? Yeah, 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 it does. It's, it's, a, it's a perspective I hadn't heard before and I appreciate your insight on that, that it's like when, when otherwise like backpedaling legislation that could you know, potentially very much harm the working class or prevent their um, their leverage in resources and, you know, um, and advocacy for working conditions, like when that gets present, like when that gets presented, like it can, it, it can reinforce your own advocacy in many ways. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a really, uh, um, especially as someone who has just like been involved in um, the labor movement. So I think that's a, it sounds like a, a keystone tactic to understand. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'd say so. I mean, and look at me as an example and look at the substitute teachers in an act 10 and right to work environment, we stopped the temp agency and we also won healthcare benefits for some subs yeah. in an environment where like public sector workers are not gaining benefits right now. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I, and that was because of that attitude. I mean, right. Um, a union, a union is workers coming together. Period. Like there's, you know, a lot of people, you know, you know, in workplaces where I've organized, you know, when I've walked in or, or other people walk in, Oh, the unions here, you know, are like, Oh, I'm so glad the union showed up today. No, if you're a member of the union, the union's always there at your workplace. You know, if you're in every, any, any workplace where there is a union member, there is a union. Like it's not, there's no other. And just because you don't have, I don't need a piece of paper or a law to tell me that I have a union. I mean, I have, I have the first amendment of our U.S. constitution, you know, which unfortunately, you know, that constitution enshrines slavery, but it also created some other apparatus that we can use today, which is the First Amendment. I mean, I have the First Amendment freedom of association. And so I don't honestly, in a lot of respects, you could argue, and this is what I've used in the attitude I've taken, that I don't need any other law but that First Amendment, that I can associate with whomever I want, and I can speak what's on my mind. And um, that is the key to a union right there. You know, I don't need um, a piece of paper or, or some lawyers in a room of negotiating with management to tell me I have a union. I have a union because I say I have a union and I'm a worker and there's a, and there's a bunch of us who say we have a union. Um, and that's, that's how, you know, the substitute teachers union um, is actually of the different bargaining units within the teachers union in Milwaukee. Um, we're the only unit that was, that was not formally recognized by the district. Every other bargaining unit had a, it's a weird act 10 thing that, I'll go into it if you ask me about it, but I don't, I think I can just gloss over it right now and say that we were not recognized and the other ones like the paraprofessionals and the teachers union were, were recognized. Um, and so I want all that stuff without even a, the most basic of act 10 um, acknowledgements of us. I mean, the, the, you know, the HR, you know, the HR would not even formally recognize me as the president of the representatives or the president of the union that represents those workers. So um, that would be the, you know, that would be, you know, those are my thoughts is that we need to really take a radical look about how, what a union is. 
And I would say that a union is, is workers coming together. And it's not the contract, although contracts are great. And I wish, I wish substitute teachers had a contract, by the way, because that would make it my work easier. Um, um, and but it's not the contract. It's not the grievances. It's not the um, you know, dues checkoff system or, or the dues deduction system. It's, it's workers coming together. And so with right to work, you know, I mean, I think that law should be repealed. But with it being here, you know, the union is not your ability to, you know, choose to be in the union or not. I mean, the union is just those workers who come together. Yeah, solidarity. I, 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 I like the, I like just the succinct description for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I wanted to hear a little bit about, like, given everything you've shared with us so far about past, your past campaign, your past positions, your past organizations, and whatnot. Um, I'd love to hear a little about a little bit about your current campaign, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, for uh, um, school board of directors, District Five. Uh, let's hear about like what your what you're campaigning on, what your goals are, just you know, what your yeah, just like how you hope to help change the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, yeah, so I, I declared at the beginning of this month to run for um, Milwaukee Board of School Directors, District 5, and um, I'm running on basically three, three things. Although, before I get into those, I'll, I'll say this, that this campaign and myself as a candidate is a, is a movement campaign and a movement-based campaign. I, I will dispute with any politician who says that their campaign is a movement. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's not true. But, you know, a campaign can, if it's done right, be a part of a movement sure, um, yeah. for change. And so and I, I am I am bent on this campaign being a movement based campaign. Um, and what that means is that, you know, we are looking to stand in solidarity in the campaign, even if it is a separate legal apparatus from all these other organizations, we're standing in solidarity with them, you know, with the with the fight for immigrants rights, with the with the um, movement to, to radically change policing, with the, um, you know, move in the movement for black lives, with, um, you know, all the all the different movements that are out there with the movement for economic democracy, with the movement for a Green New Deal, you know, right. we're standing in solidarity with all those movements. Um, to make uh, you know a better world possible, and we're trying to be you know just one one piece of the of the puzzle of how the, how we're going to make you know this change happen. I really do believe that it's uh, um, that the that the our movements are an interdependence, um, and so like because there's a tension, there's a little bit of a tension that I notice on the on the left in Milwaukee and other places where they say, oh well, you know, you can't be a radical and run for office, or you can't do you know do the, or whatever, and you can't um, you know direct actions are against political campaigns or, and I, I just don't believe that's true. I mean, I, I think having good people in public office will help to move regular citizens to taking more direct action. Um, Cause when I'm on the board, um, you know, I am going to call for direct actions of workers and communities and I'm going to, I'm going to support them. And too often, you know, our elected leaders don't and that, and they, and, and sometimes it has the effect of, of cooling down or dampening those demands from regular people. Not always, but it, but it, it cools them to some extent. You know, um, if a community leader, you know, who looks up to the alderman and the alder person doesn't support a direct action, well, sometimes that can, can put a damper on it. So I think there's an interdependence. Although I think the main power always lies with the people um, and needs, that's where the, where the power comes from is from regular people and from the people. So what we, I'll say, I said all that to, 
to, to say this, that this campaign hopes to accomplish some things in the content, the broader context of, you know, fighting for a, a more just world. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, accomplish three things on the school board. Um, I'm going to be fighting for public schools. Um, that, that fight is absolutely imperative to have these days and for us to have strong. And we have, we have fighters for public school on the board, and I'm going to join that chorus and also help to organize even more of a chorus for it. You have probably seen, and maybe your listeners um, have also seen in the news, you know, some, some of the corporations are trying to use the pandemic to their advantage as far as privatization. You know, I saw, and I don't totally remember all the details of this article, but I saw an article where, you know, Microsoft had come together with the state of New York um, to do some virtual learning things. Hopefully that partnership is only just that, that maybe Microsoft will provide some software or something to augment virtual learning. Or, you know, knowing Bill Gates' ideology, he might be using it as an in to privatize some schools, too. And using, using the pandemic as a Trojan horse to, to privatize schooling. Um, and I, you know, that's just, I'm just supposing there, but um, that is a concern of mine that, that they're gonna use this pandemic, that the privatizers will use this pandemic to, um, to er, uh, erode public schools in this city. Um, and, and you know, specifically in Milwaukee. I mean, the, the, the voucher program started here and you know, they, uh, the voucher supporters are bent on um, having the voucher program be successful, despite all the instances of it not being successful, right? So, and, you know, one of the ways, one of the ways that they can have it be successful is to completely destroy the public school system in this city. Um, and that's, that's unacceptable. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a fighter for that on the schools. And then the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to be advocating and ensuring um, that we have healthy school environments um, in Milwaukee. Um, and what I mean by that is, I mean, an environment that's um, free from, from negative influences like police, um, you know, and, and, and the supportive of students of their mental health and social development, you know, like more, you know, counselors over cops is a slogan that's out there. I totally support that, um, you know, yeah, that kind of uh, situation. And then also, you know, providing good food for students and healthy, nutritious food. Um, I would say based on being in the classroom as much as I have that the breakfast and lunch that MPS provides um, does not meet what I would consider to be healthy school food. Um, and granted, there is some constraints and, you know, the more the healthier it gets, unfortunately, the way our society is set up, the more expensive it gets. But I think there's a, you know, I think we can find some compromise that would greatly improve the situation with school nutrition. Um, and also, you know, you talk about the buildings and the built environment, you know, and that and we have we have um, we have classrooms without windows <laughs> where kids aren't getting fresh air in the district. I've seen them. I've taught in them. And. Not as much learning occurs because of that. I think as a direct result, we've got lead and other toxic infrastructure in schools, um, and that's completely unacceptable. I mean, we need, so the, my second point of ensuring a healthy school environment means that we're gonna take a comprehensive total look at the student and what they're experiencing and how is that making them healthier or not? Because I really do believe that people are products of their environments um, and we need to do everything we can to have that. And the third thing that I'm gonna be fighting for on the school board is for um, us to have, for us to democratize education. And what I mean by that is we need to have the decision-making and specifically the budgetary processes of the school district be open to not just administration and the board. Um, right now, just to take the budget, for example, 
you know, right now we have, um, you know, schools and departments will submit budgets to the central office before it's presented to the board. I think that parents and staff and community, and even in some cases, students should be involved in what does that school budget look like before it's proposed? You know, and what is that, you know, the, there's, a, there's a concept out there um, called participatory budgeting. And I, I want MPS to be the model for participatory budgeting in Wisconsin. Now, participatory budgeting isn't gonna get us more dollars for schools, but at least we can decide what to do with those limited dollars that we have. Um, and, and hopefully what it'll do is it'll help, you know, make the community aware of the racist funding scheme that we have for schools in Wisconsin and help and help organize folks to take action against it, too. Um, but in the meantime, you know, before we get the you know, overhaul of the state funding formula and everything, what we can do is have people, regular people and staff and students um, have a say in, in how that looks as far as the budget. And that should also apply to policies. That the district has i actually think and, and call me crazy but i think that a regular citizen if they want to see a change in a school should be able to um through organizing and through demonstrating that other people are with them either through petitions or whatever should be able to to force the board to consider policies yeah. um i mean like I, and I, I don't think that's that out of the question i mean right now only the school board directors can propose new policies but I think a citizen, a regular citizen or students or community members or staff should be able to say, we want this policy change. And, you know, I have a thousand signatures that agree with me. Now you better talk about it. And maybe the board votes it down or not, but like it should be, or even maybe we should even have this, the, the actual people voting on it, you know, but I, and I, I, maybe I'm sounding all over the place with that particular piece, but I just want to say that the, I'm trying to present to you and yeah. your listeners, the idea of democracy in our um, governance systems. And this idea right now that we have, um, you know, that we elect people who are the sole responsibility for decisions. I just, I don't agree with that dynamic. I mean, I think that we should have, I think that we should have more citizen initiatives. We should have, you know, people, a regular person, if I wanted to, um, you know, win healthcare for substitute teachers, I should be able to um, initiate a policy change for that, rather than having to go on hunger strike to convince, yeah. you know, nine people of, the, of the, what I'm saying is right. I shouldn't have to go on a hunger strike. I shouldn't have to, you know, there's a bunch of other examples, too, that would fit this as well. You know, whether it's curriculum or specific school policies, we should have citizen initiatives that can do that. And so those are, and I, I also, the other point to that, um, and not to, not to elaborate or, you know, belabor this too much, but I think eventually we need to seriously consider the makeup of the school board. Yeah. I think there should be more seats. There should be more seats on the school board. There's nine seats right now. That is far too few for a city of over 500,000 people to represent views and represent communities. I think in addition to having more seats, I think we should also have seats that represent specific interests on the school board. So for example, what if we would create um, a school board seat uh, for a parent from a low performing school? You know, then they would, they would be elected, of course, you know, this isn't just like a, you know, this isn't whatever, it's not, not undemocratic, it would be a democratic process, but through some sort of democratic process, a parent who can represent other low performing school parents can be on the board. And that's what we want at the table. We should be creating positions for whom we want to sit at the table and it should be structural change. 
you know, and we shouldn't, you know, we, um, you know, we're caught in this trap right now electorally, right? Where we're saying, oh, we have to elect the right people, which I, I completely agree with, or elect people that represent certain communities. And I agree with that. But I think beyond that, we should be advocating for structural change that actually gives groups that are underrepresented seats at the actual table. Now, changing the composition of the board would require a change in state law. So it's no small feat. But perhaps in the meantime, the school board can, can just put a seat on the board and not, not an actual voting seat, but maybe just a seat. You know, and you, you are a student representative and you can sit up here with us and be a part of the discussion that we have, even if you don't have a legal vote on the board. Um, so those are the three parts of my platform, but I'm also, you know, I'm a big supporter of teachers. Obviously, you know, I wanna, I wanna obviously finish the job when it comes to getting every subs who works full-time healthcare, oh, yeah. um, but also, you know, making sure that MPS is an employer, but beyond that, MPS should be an employer that attracts and retains the best and the brightest in this city. Yeah, so. amazing. I, all of that is uh, really, um, like, I, it's it's interesting when I like respond to like really long um when people like talk for a long time like because I kind of like live vicariously through your words for, for so long um but but um but yeah no I I wholeheartedly fully endorse all of those that uh, every component of your platform um you know we were fortunate enough to advocate this past summer to get MPD out of MPS. And we succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was a huge, huge step. And, but like you said, like you've you've reiterated several times, is that you know it doesn't stop there. You know we have to continue to advocate for the the safe, healthy, productive, and you know, um, and just child invested. Um, education environment the one uh, invest in no matter where you come from or what school you go to every child is is a you know is has a gift and is treated as such and has you know mm -hmm. the opportunities to be successful and pursue their creative or um or aspirational desires and uh, it sounds like all the resources that you are advocating for not only do that, but also, you know, don't forget about the teachers because teachers are just such a neglected mm -hmm. profession, you know, that are being paid horribly, um, that are being, you know, left behind because of privatization and because of, or they're being left behind because, you know, education becomes so politicized but it shouldn't be mm -hmm. you know? and so i yeah i i appreciate all these sentiments of your campaign um and uh yeah i look forward to um supporting your campaign in every way i can and to help and to, you know help um folks out here in milwaukee understand you know that it's a very crucial time for milwaukee education so Mm -hmm. um i i look yeah i look forward to seeing what you do um yeah and i also i did want to talk about one more thing i know we've been talking for so Please. long now um but your executive no director, i appreciate this <laughs> your executive director for uh the was it the milwaukee alliance for retired americans yeah well it's the wisconsin alliance for retired americans wisconsin sure 
I'd love to hear yeah. a little bit about mm -hmm. your work with that organization too, because it sounds sort of aligned with a lot of these principles that you've you know worked through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and thank you for asking about that. I um, yeah, I love I love that organization. So this spring, I did um, accept a a position to run um, this organization. I, I call it Wira. We call it Wira, but it's uh, the Wisconsin Alliance for Retired Americans. It's the state affiliate of the American Alliance for Retired Americans, mm -hmm. um, which is or well, it's just called Amer Alliance for Retired Americans. But um, what it is, is it's a uh, organization that advocates for retirees and their earned benefits. Um, it's uh, made up of a lot of union retirees. So it's still within the labor movement and we have a seat on the state AFL-CIO board that our president Gary Mitchell um, sits on. And um, you know, what we do is we're advocating um, for things like social security and Medicare um, and to continue and strengthen those programs. And we're also just advocating you know, for retirees in general. So one of the campaigns that we've that we've taken on is to fight for the United States Post Office. Although that, you know, that whole issue has mushroomed into something that, you know, every American is caring about right now. Um, but in some ways, you know, traditionally that is a retiree issue. Um, but, uh, you know, so that, so that organization, you know, I'm really proud to do that. It's, um, we're in close, we work in close collaboration with the unions, um, our funders, our unions. Um, so we're we, with, with building trades and with the, uh, the state fed and all that stuff. And so one of our, you know, our, our aims, um, when I became executive director, I, um, brought the board a little bit through like a decision-making process and what we, you know, decided to do was to campaign for, uh, supporting the USPS, um, and, um, and also in the labor endorsed candidates as well, uh, fighting for labor endorsed candidates. So we are, you know, we're getting out the vote and everything like that too. So I'm really, uh, I'm really proud to be working with them. And they're actually a great group of folks. Um, I enjoy this job as, uh, as we're, uh, um, more than I've enjoyed most of my jobs, to be very honest, you know, so that's, that's really good. And it's really good to be, you know, still with the labor movement. I, um, you know, I support term limits for union leaders, um, and I was glad that I was termed out, and I could only hold two two-year terms. Um, yeah. But um, but in some ways, I was kind of sad too. I was like, oh, you know, I was a labor leader, and now, um, you know, not not going to be. But this, so this is another opportunity. Although I'm on the staff side of things now, and not the member leader side, I'm still able to you know, be a leader in, in advocating for these things. And, uh, you know, we're, we're fighting, you know, there are a bunch of fighting retirees. So we, uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to be, to be working for them and doing that. And um, uh, did that answer your question yeah, about yeah, that group? Yeah. I didn't know if you, oh, you had any specific, yeah, okay. I just wanted to, wanted to hear a little bit about the organization itself and the mission mm -hmm. and everything, but Alex Brower, it's so, so great to talk to you, man. I, I, you know, I, I do really, um, these episodes that where um, I guess just sort of takes it away, you know, with your your career exploits and endeavors and everything, like it makes it easy for me. But also, they become some of the most like expository and informational and just you know most um, hard hitting episodes when it comes to like really hearing about someone that lives and breathes what they do. So. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I appreciate you making time for me. Um, mm -hmm. I, so I have two closing questions that I ask every guest. Yeah. I'm interested in okay. your responses here. So first is what keeps you up at night? Wow. Um, you know, trying not to let people down. 
um, is one of those things. Um, you know, and, and when I, um, I mean, I remember when I was on hunger strike, um, you know, I, I had a moment where, um, you know, I normally don't let my emotions get the best of me, but I, uh, did have a moment during the hunger strike where I just, I just pulled my car over and, and just started bawling, um, because I was just thinking about, you know, had the weight of, of all these subs who were counting on me, weight of those folks on my shoulders, um, and so I guess like, you know, if I do, when I do have anxiety that does, that may cause me to not sleep, if like in a very literal sense, you know, not keeping me up at night, you know, that, that might be what, that is why. And in, in a, also in a figurative sense, like that is one of my, that is one of my worries that I, I want to make sure that, you know, that um, as a leader that I'm, um, you know, not letting people down and, and fighting and fighting as hard as I can so that when somebody you know, sees what I do, they can say, okay, well, you know, at least, uh, you know, at least we have, you know, Alex who's, who's doing everything he can. And there's obviously more leaders than me that are doing everything they can. And that's, that's great. And I'm a part of a movement, but um, that's, that would be my answer to that question. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. I, I have a similar, similar uh, anxiety keeps me up at night too. Um, you know, the, the imposter syndrome, it's real, <laughs> very real. Um, what, uh, puts you to sleep? That's the second question. Wow. Um, well, I mean, in a literal sense, you know, I have a pretty good sleep schedule, so I go to bed almost at the same time every day, but in a, in a, in a figure, figurative sense, the way that I, what I'm grateful for that helps me like be able to really fully relax to go to sleep. What I'm grateful for is, um, you know, all the people that are, that are out there fighting and seeing all these people who are out there, out there fighting. And that, and that supports me. Um, you know, and in some ways those, those folks are like directly supporting me and, and, you know, and, and doing things, you know, for my campaigns or endeavors that I'm on, but sometimes they're just out there, you know, um, you know, out there, out there fighting and that, and I am, I am, you know, that gratuity that I, that I have to those folks, you know, one of those people I would say is uh, one, a really good friend of mine, um, Rick Banks, who is the oh. political director? Shout yeah, out to you Rick. know, you know, you know, Rick. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, and that's somebody I'm, I'm really grateful is in the movement, um, here in Milwaukee. Another person whom I'm really grateful for, um, that's that's fighting a lot and and doing some really cool stuff is a is a friend of mine, Alex Hagler, who um owns a business, Center Street Wellness, um, which unfortunately the pandemic has caused to close, um, but my, you know, but I'm really, I'm really grateful you know, for, for what he's doing and everything. Um, and that, uh, I mean, obviously also, I'm, I'm obviously grateful to my partner and girlfriend, Brandy Johnson, you know, who, uh, who is also, uh, she's a co-chair of DSA here in Milwaukee and, um, and just, and just one of the, and just a really strong woman. So um, I'm grateful for her too, but I think that that gratuity is what, uh, is what helps like uh, get me to sleep. Totally. Thank you so much, Alex Brower, for being on the show. And once again, I'm mm -hmm. very much looking forward to supporting and endorsing, you know, your campaign to be on Milwaukee's Fifth District School Board. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. May I say one more thing here before Please I do. before I leave? And I promise it will not be long-winded. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and go I ahead. do. I I, I do apologize for, for my no, long-windedness in this interview, but I the um but I, what I will say is for your listeners out there, you know, um, if you're appreciating what I have to say. Um, you know, the way that you could help me out the most um, would be to be a leader in your own way out there.
Um, that's what I need. I need everybody who's listening to become a leader. And this movement um, for a better world needs you to become a leader. Um, so that's all I'll say. In, in addition to, you know, going to voteforalexbrower.org. Right, <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, and checking that website out. In addition to doing that, what more importantly, what I need all of your listeners to do is be a leader in your own way. Um, and I do have thoughts on how you can do that. If the folks want to contact me, they're more than welcome to. But um, you don't even need to contact me to do it. Be a leader, fight, be resilient, and, uh, and then we can uh, win the world we want. That's right. I, I agree with that. You know, there's no, there's, you can't emulate someone else's leadership. You have to be your own leader. And, 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 and luckily we are in a time where that is ever so uh, imperative um, in this mm -hmm. movement for racial justice and socioeconomic justice and LGBTQ. LGBTQ plus justice and all all mm -hmm. kinds like is like we need everyone's voice is unique and everyone's voice matters just as much as the others and I am a firm mm -hmm. very firm believer in that and that's why I interview so many people so um, so once again Good. yeah I'll, I'll be posting uh, um, your website um, and uh, letting people know how they can be involved to support you but Thank you, Alex, once again. Thank you for watching Mr. Nice Guy, for everyone that tuned in. We will see you next time. Take care.